0: Um, Okay, so before I dive into my topic for today, um, I want to just kind of throw out there that I'm just finishing up another project, um, just in case any of you are interested um, in conversations about this, and I always want to get feedback on it, which is looking at domestic climate change law in the U.S., but trying to think about multi-level law and policymaking from the federal level to the state level and the way in which non-state actors and state actors influence federal level Uh, law and policy. So if anybody's interested in that kind of work and has thinking about that, um, I'd love to chat with you. Okay, now, um, the ideas I want to, so first of all, can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Um, If not, I can turn this on, but I'd prefer not to, I suppose, if we don't need it. Um, But the ideas I'm going to talk about today really emerge from a long-standing interest in finding ways to draw upon the rule of law more effectively in the climate context, Um, and I'm now working to develop these ideas in the context of a a nascent book project that I'm really just in the early phases of sketching out, so these are some early ideas. Um, The project extends a line of thinking in my work that tries to reframe climate change and really thus climate law, not just as an environmental problem. Um, that we can conceptualize and respond to with conventional or really I- even innovative tools of environmental law, but is a much more pervasive social and legal challenge that requires us to rethink and engage larger legal systems. It's really a ch- climate change is really a challenge. the tendrils of which reach untold areas of our lives and the law, and any legal or governance project that begins from a point of thinking about how to shape a system of climate law as a distinct area of law is destined to, if not fail, at least be inadequate, because climate change is and will impact everything from agriculture and water to public health to city planning, mobility, economic development, basic uh, human security and human rights, and of course disasters, we're going to talk about So climate change really requires us to rethink many aspects of who we are and how we coexist. So starting from the premise that addressing climate change means thinking about how it will affect the way we live and the way we govern ourselves writ large, the object of this work is to think about larger relationships between climate change and the rule of law, both at a theoretical level, which will be the focus of my talk today, but really just a small part of the book project, But also at a practical level, trying to tease out the way that climate change is creating uh, really systemic disruptions in a variety of contexts and the way in which uh, this creates both challenges to and opportunities for the rule of law and the way that we govern ourselves. So today for a little bit of context, and knowing that Dan Bodansky is going to come later and talk about this in greater detail, so I'll give a frame but not do too much of it, but I'll provide a very brief overview of the state of international climate change law, really, really brief, uh, before exploring two two key questions. Uh, These being the degree to which there exists an international community as such that underlies and advances or that can underlie and advance collective climate goals, Um, And on this first point, I will suggest that the enduring, but arguably flawed or eroding assumption that there exists a collective like-minded or at least collectively cooperative international community that both shares a sense of purpose and intent to advance international climate change objectives, as well as the power to do so, has historically been one of the most underexplored roadblocks to our efforts to address climate change. Um, And with respect to the second theme, which is the focus of this kind of emerging work, um, I want to explore the extent to which the rule of law and most more precisely post-war shared understandings of the rule of law persist and provide a foundation for moving forward with efforts to address climate change. Um, And the basic premise here is really that the rule of law is critical to efforts to address climate change, but that our shared understandings of the rule of law are actually in flux um, or at least under significant pressure. And this creates challenges not just for our sense of national and international identity, who we are, but also for our ability to leverage law in the climate change context. Um, So let me just say a tiny bit more about this second theme before taking a step back to talk about international climate change law more broadly. Now, as uh, any look at the daily news reminds us, we kind of find ourselves at a moment where we really must not only question the strength and solidarity of the international community, but also at a moment when we need to look more closely at any assumptions that we hold about shared understandings of the rule of law. This matters in the climate context because we increasingly recognize the need for stable and transparent systems of law as the backbone of efforts to address climate change. Um, So, just to reiterate, even as we become acutely aware of the need to shore up and deploy law and really kind of the ideas of the rule of law to address climate change at the national and international levels, our shared understanding of the meaning of the rule of law are in flux or at least under enormous pressure and scrutiny. So it is these kind of conflicting tides that I'm really interested in. First, exploring and interrogating these intersections at the theoretical level before exploring the climate change rule of law intersections in the context of particular sectors, and in particular, I'm going to focus on uh, food security, water security, human security, and health. So now, backing up for a minute, um, as a very basic frame for climate change, and this is just assuming that not everybody in this room spends every day thinking about climate change, although I assume that there's some broad understanding, some of us do, I know, Um, But as a very basic frame, we know that humans are influencing the climate system. We know that the anticipated impact of this human forcing is and will lead to widespread harm and we know that in order to limit climate change and to minimize the harmful effects of climate change worldwide, we must both reduce greenhouse gas emissions and facilitate adaptation and resiliency building efforts globally. We being all of us, uh, but especially from the mitigation perspective, we being the big polluting states have a role to play here. But of course therein lies really the heart of the challenge with climate change. Uh, The causes of climate change are driven by a small handful of very powerful states. The effects of climate change are felt by all of humankind, but of course most acutely and in the short term by those people who are already um, experiencing high levels of vulnerability. So in other words, climate change is both one of the greatest collective action challenges of our time, but it also poses some of the greatest distributional justice challenges of our time. Now, um, obtaining international cooperation is never easy, as you all know, Um, and in the case of climate change, it is further hindered by uncertainties about the timing and extent of harm that we're we're expecting, our general lack of experience with problems having multi-century footprints uncertainty about how to decarbonize our energy systems while continuing to allow economic development, and the perception, we can question whether it's a reality or not, but the perception that short-term individual state interests, particularly the interests of our big polluter states, which also tend to be our great power states, are often in conflict with the collective interest of combating climate change on behalf of larger humankind. So given these obstacles, it sometimes seems surprising Um, that it's been impossible to mount any legal response to climate change at all, but of course we have. Um, So where are we with our evolving system of international climate change law, and where do we go from here, and that's the context for the work. Um, So the Paris Agreement, which of course is our uh, current legal apparatus, represents the culmination of efforts to create what I would think of as a more flexible, more pluralistic, bottom-up model for addressing climate change. Um, As Dan will no doubt talk to you about in greater detail, um, the Paris Agreement, but I love the way he describes it. He describes it as, and the the end result is being a bit of a Goldilocks solution that is neither too strong and hence unacceptable to key states, nor too weak and hence ineffective. Uh, Very apt description. But in brief, the Paris Agreement sets, of course, a a collective goal of keeping warming below 2 degrees Celsius or with the idea of 1.5 degrees Celsius above Uh, pre-industrial levels, but what it doesn't do is it does not set an overall emission reduction target for states that is either individual or collectively shared. Instead each party, and for parties we're mostly talking about individual states, but of course we also have the EU, um, but they have to submit a written statement of their goals and objectives under the Paris Agreement. Um, These submissions are called nationally determined contributions or NDCs in case you see that. And these nationally determined contributions should reflect the party's highest possible ambition within a common but differentiated responsibility framework. So the party must say what it's willing to do to address climate change and, really importantly, why its commitment is both fair and ambitious. Now, with each subsequent round of NDC submissions, parties have to adopt progressively ambitious goals, and one little caveat is that any state that qualifies as a developed country must have an absolute emission reduction obligation as part of that commitment. Now, the adoption and rapid coming uh, coming into force of the Paris Agreement, which is very different than the previous agreement, the Kyoto Protocol, was heralded as a really positive move towards greater international cooperation and experimentation in our efforts to address climate change. One of the key reasons that the Paris Agreement uh, was seen as a success initially was because it, for the first time, really brought all of the major emitters, China, the US, India, Brazil, the EU, um, together under a legal framework that demands that every state participate in efforts to mitigate climate change. Um, Now, despite this new level of cooperation, when assessing the Paris Agreement, Um, on expected effectiveness, and there have been several studies in this regard, um, what we've discovered is that even if parties fully fulfilled the commitments they've made under the agreement, which of course really is a naive assumption right now if you look at what's happening in the US and elsewhere, um, it's unlikely that these collective um, commitments would hold warming below that 2 degrees Celsius objective, maybe even not below 3 degrees. So if from a pure mitigation effectiveness perspective, the Paris Agreement falls short, or at least isn't guaranteeing success, um, what does it offer as a tool to prevent climate disaster or climate crisis, as we hear more and more about? Um, At a minimum, in moving away from the pre-existing paradigm that envisioned the world as split into two categories of actors with vastly different global obligations, or at least somewhat different global obligations, this being developed in developing states, the agreement offers the parameters for a new approach to climate change law that's premised on inclusiveness but also on more individualized forms of cooperation, uh, both of these really being essential, and the, uh, the latter, the embrace of a more pluralistic form of international cooperation, um, having some equity concerns associated with it, but hopefully being more functional in our current fractured political environment, and thus perhaps, enabling states to experiment and be more ambitious in their individual and collective efforts to address climate change. Now, in this way, and this is a positive slant on it, but in this way, the Paris Agreement responds to the rigidity and deficiencies and assumptions of the previous approach embodied by the Kyoto Protocol and makes a sharp turn away from the top-down mitigation framework while also inviting a more transparent um, and inclusive discussion of fairness and ambition. So disrupting that conventional top-down approach is, is no small accomplishment, it's actually quite significant. That model of international law emerged from that previous model that the Kyoto Protocol reflected, um, emerged from and reflected a traditional form of multilateral environmental agreement um, and inertia uh, really kept the international community rooted within that conventional form of cooperation even as its utility faltered. Um, Now, the Paris Agreement is far from perfect, but assuming and hoping that it's a platform for moving forward, what are some of the key challenges to developing more effective and equitable system of of international climate change law? Or, more aptly returning to my earlier theme, larger systems of law that are capable of coping with climate change, whether we just call them climate change law or not. So here's where we return to the two themes. Historically, the presumption of an enabling international community, um, and then moving forward, um, the mutual dependency of climate change and the rule of law. So the collective, nature, collective action nature of climate change frames these challenges, um, but it's not just the collective action nature of climate change that makes it difficult um, to address. It is that this challenge is situated within a much larger ongoing debate in international law, about the degree to which we see ourselves as a collective human community. International climate change law emerged really at the pinnacle of cooperation and optimism in the 90s about collective efforts to take on international environmental challenges, and it really represents the paradigmatic example of the assumption that we can envision ourselves as a collective or at least cooperative human community. Now, as a result, the substance of international climate change law and one of the challenges that we have can be explained by pointing more directly to how our efforts to address climate change reflect upon our ongoing struggles to decide whether we are, in fact, a collective and cooperative community or not. Now, this question predates but has taken on even more resonance in recent years with the rise of populist and nationalist movements in the U.S., Europe, Asia, and elsewhere, and we're going to return to that in a moment. But the notion that we're a global community or an international community, we can talk about the difference between those terms and why it matters if if you want, but the the notion that we're a global community that can and at times should function collectively is really intertwined with the evolution of international law as a system of law focusing on ways to allow states to coexist peacefully to a system that at times also seeks to facilitate cooperation around issues of common interest. Now, the idea of international law functioning as a law of cooperation, as many of you will know, dates back to the 60s when uh, Wolfgang Friedman <coughs> had proposed this idea of the law of cooperation as a counterpart <coughs> to the law of coexistence. Um, and I'm sure many of you will be familiar with this idea that you know, in the post-war era, international law primarily and in- initially operated to facilitate peaceful coexistence between sovereign states. Um, So for a good period of time, the primary goal of international law arguably was not to resolve all differences between states, still isn't, but at least to recognize those differences and find some kind of equilibrium that would enable states to coexist peacefully. The focus of the evolving body of international law was to establish and maintain a minimum of order between potentially antagonistic um, entities, or really, I guess to put it more bluntly, to find ways to keep entities peacefully apart, to allow them to peacefully coexist. Now, as international law and patterns of globalization evolved, a new theme emerged, and that theme really was cooperation. So as states began to identify more areas where something more than coexistence was needed, think human rights, development, the environment, um, international law began to evolve, and a new new modes of cooperation began to emerge around these areas of common interest, um, recognizing that many of these areas could not be addressed or responded to unilaterally. Now, we began to identify areas, thus, where we, we here being the international community as such, uh, had to work to develop a shared community of interests and perhaps values, and we began to look for ways to come together to address those shared concerns. Notably, with these new cooperative efforts, instead of being asked to refrain from certain behaviors, states were often asked to actively undertake something, so to adopt positive obligations. To cooperate around these shared interests, we began to develop new institutions to bring states together, um, to set goals and obligation, and to assign new divisions of labor we did so on the basis that we were also simultaneously developing more and more shared ground, which in turn would allow us to develop shared understandings of the rule of law, its meaning, its goals, its operation. Now, these new cooperative efforts reflected really a fundamental shift in the way that we envisioned state-to-state relationship um, and required much more ambitious efforts on the part of states both individually (coughs) and collectively. In order to affect social change of the kind that we are beginning to envision, we needed not only a complex set of institutions to facilitate cooperative action, but also at least a thinly held shared sense of community and purpose, or as we lawyers would say, some shared normative ground, common ground. Um, and of course this has proven uh, difficult, and in the environmental context, although we've made really actually very impressive progress towards developing an increasingly um, sophisticated set of legal and bureaucratic institutions, these institutions have struggled to facilitate the type of cooperation and action that is needed to resolve many of our most pressing global environmental challenges, including climate change. And increasingly, these already tenuously held, the, the kind of the already tenuously held normative common ground um, and cooperative spirit underlying these efforts is under pressure. Um, so as we find ourselves at this moment in time, when again, as, we kind of mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, when populist and nationalists and even authoritarian movements worldwide are putting increasing pressure on our already fragile cooperative institutions and our shared sense of purpose, it seems important to ask and to really think about whether we've done enough over the past decades to develop um, the institutions and the supporting normative framework to acknowledge and respond to and incontestably global collective interests that bind us and require us to come together for our common good. So really, have we built up enough of a sense of awareness of the collective risks of climate change and enough of a normative and institutional foundation around climate change to support efforts to cooperate with respect to this grand challenge even as our shared ground seems to be eroding. Now, at this point, I want to take a big step backward in order to give this conversation a little more context and then really to look forward. Um, So we've been, we being kind of the scholarly policy community and us here in the room, but we've been asking these questions and thinking about these things in the context of international climate change law. Um, But of course, international climate change law, as you all know very well, is situated within the larger body of public international law, private international law to a certain degree as well, increasingly public international law, generally. And then of course, public international law is in turn shaped in substance, implementation, and impact by fluctuations in international affairs. Now, as I suggested earlier, in order to really reshape systems to be responsive to climate change for the purpose of ensuring um, human well-being, we must think beyond climate law as such to how to integrate climate considerations into our law and governance structures much more systematically. Um, so this requires us to think much more broadly about the relationship between climate change and the rule of law and to cont- and really contextualizes why it is critical that before we rush forward to decipher our collective will in the climate law context or really to orchestrate the future of climate law we must explore the contours of the larger context within which we are operating and the ways in which these ongoing debates about the meaning and substantive content of the rule of law shape the governance space within which we are trying to develop climate-related responses. Um, Again, it doesn't take much more than a brief scan of the headlines on any given day, really at any time of the day, to appreciate the challenges that we're facing at the intersection of climate change and the rule of law. On one hand, for example, just this past week in California, hundreds of thousands of people had the, had their power cut to minimize the power just turned off to minimize dangerous fire conditions. These power cuts, um, which pose really serious risks for vulnerable communities and, and immobilized populations, but also interrupted normal social and economic patterns, um, at the moment are considered a best response to climate-related risks, but. Um, Of course, this response isn't sustainable, and the risks are only likely to grow. Um, Then we look at the Bahamas and Puerto Rico and even Haiti still, and we see the entire social and governance systems remain weakened and unstable following massive storm-related disasters. Droughts in Uruguay and Afghanistan, Australia, Somaliland, India devastate communities, drive people out, and destabilize local and global food markets. Um, If you think you're hearing a lot about climate disasters, you are, but you're only really hearing about the big ones. Um, The UN now warns that climate disasters are happening at the rate of one a week. Some of those are sudden onset, and some of those are slow onset. Um, Individually and cumulatively, cumulatively, these disasters create untold pressures to the overall functioning and well-being of villages, cities, states, and even nations. Um, and this, in turn, of course, puts enormous pressure on our legal and governance systems. Now, on the other hand, while these climate crises play out, the rule of law is also under much is also being more, really more directly tested. Um, so, for example, not too long ago, on the same day, either side of the Atlantic, impeachment proceedings are begun against the U.S. president, with the Speaker of the House declaring that the president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. Well, on the other side of the Atlantic, here, of course, the court confronted the question of whether the Prime Minister had interfered with the operations of Parliament, ultimately finding that the decision to prorogue Parliament had the effect of frustrating or preventing Parliament from carrying out its functions. As one headline declared, um, uh, the PM fought the law, but the law won. Uh, But of course the challenges to the integrity of the rule of law just systemically didn't end there. Um, Following the court's decision, members of parliament directly questioned the legitimacy and the integrity of the court and its decision. Um, And these are only the tip of the iceberg, the high-profile instances of challenges to the rule of law. Behind these high-level, rather audacious challenges to the rule of law, there are more subtle but pervasive discourses questioning shared understandings. Um, There are and always have been very intense debates as to what the rule of law means. In many ways, I think of the rule of law as similar to sustainable development. We use this term a lot, but sometimes we don't take the time to really define what it means. Um, so there are intense debate as to what it encompasses, and by no means do I mean to suggest that there is a settled consensus um, view of the rule of law. It is, as it always has been, a highly contested principle. Um, Much of the debate uh, around the rule of law, of course, is jurisprudential and revolves around whether one understands the rule of law in a narrow or thin sense as opposed to a thick rule of law um, that not only focuses on the process, fixed and transparent rules, and limiting government power, but also on outcomes and includes considerations of, for example, justice, equity, human rights, and respect for international law. Um, Of course, for those of you familiar with this area, Lord Bingham would espouse this kind of thick, normative perspective of rule of law, whereas Roz would really derisively call that the rule of good law. Um, This is a thick, layered debate, and one that I'm thinking my way through and would welcome your thoughts on. Um, But for purposes of our really brief time together, um, perhaps we can at least agree that a thick, inherently normative understanding of the rule of law, based on broad notions of Broadly, kind of liberalism, um, and grounded in a b- belief that the rule of law is linked to human rights, broadly speaking, um, and to norms of cooperation and peaceful coexistence, have formed the basis for the development of what, much of what we think of as public international law, including international environmental law in the post-war era. This vision of the rule of law really defines and guides the UN and has enabled the progressive post-war move towards globalization. Now, returning to our previous theme, even as we've struggled to develop or realize the ideal of a cooperative international community, our normative understanding of the rule of law has at least propelled international law and international affairs along a pathway premised on its possibility and on broad understandings of globalism, liberalism, and pluralism. Now, the comments of past even hawkish conservative US presidents support this idea. So, just as a couple of examples, when addressing Congress after the questionable 1990 Iraq invasion of Kuwait, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, uh, the first President Bush said a new world order was emerging, a world where the rule of law supplants the rule of the jungle, a world in which nations recognize the shared responsibility for freedom and justice, a world where the strong respect the rights of the weak. America and the world must support the rule of law, and we will. A dozen or so years later, his son, George W. Bush, in his State of the Union address echoed the same sentiment. But America will always stand firm for the non-negotiable demands of human dignity, the rule of law, limits on the power of the state, respect for women, private property, free speech, equal justice, and religious tolerance. Now, we might very fairly question both of these presidents' terminology as well as adherence to the ideals that they set forth. But what we can see is that even for a historically isolationist inclined country, Uh, Their vision of the rule of law at the international level was thick and not to an insignificant degree global. Now, contrast that with where we are today, where the U.S. president goes before the U.N. General Assembly and advances an unabashedly nationalist platform declaring that the free world must embrace its national foundations. Wise leaders put the good of their own people and their own country first. The future does not belong to globalists. The future belongs to patriots. As one commentator describes it, now not even the American president will stand up for liberal democracy nor a founding mission of the United Nations to promote peace through interconnectedness. Reflecting a similar skepticism about interconnectedness and globalism and a contempt for international interference in what he understands to be a purely national matter, um, Brazil's President Bolsonaro recently suggested that it's a fallacy to describe the Amazon as the heritage of humanity and rejected, I think, although it's unclear at this point, rejected international funds for the Amazon, for the fires in the Amazon, accusing the G7 of undermining Brazil's sovereignty and treating it, in his words, as if it were a colony or nobody's land, and calling into question that which we hold as our most sacred value, our sovereignty. Now, as you all know, while hesitancy to have other states or the international community as such, Interfere in domestic decision-making is far from uncommon, really the basis of international law. What is notable about this instance is that Brazil has historically been a key facilitator for the development of international environmental law and governance, the host state for the Rio Conference, for the Rio Plus 20 Conference, and an active state in cooperative dialogue. Protective of sovereignty, always? Yes. And a proponent of the development rights of developing countries? Absolutely. But hostile to international cooperation and globalism? No. So these are just a couple of examples of an upwelling of what is a complex mix of populist and nationalist sentiment, not always the same, but we're tending to see a lot of them hand in hand, um, that really appears to be eroding shared understandings of the normative content and direction of international law, and as such calling into question many of the norms that underpin international climate co- cooperation in the climate space. So with the rise of populism and nationalism, Um, Globally, we're likely to see more challenges to the rule of law emerge, so that is really to our shared understanding of the rule of law and its operation. Um, Of course, what I've offered here is just a really basic sketch of a really still emergent and quite volatile discourse that's taking place all over the world. Um, We need to better understand these upwellings and what they mean for domestic international politics. Um, And neither here today nor in my larger project is my goal to be the architect of that understanding. Uh, My goals are much more modest and really focused on mapping out the extent to which these larger trends shape our understanding of and really our ability to leverage law and our notions of the rule of law in the climate context. Now, in his seminal book on the rule of law, Lord Bingham proposed that The rule of law is one of the greatest unifying factors, perhaps the greatest. It remains an ideal, but an ideal worth striving for. Um, His view of the rule of law was thick and normative and inherently liberal and globalist. His vision, while by no means uncontested, in many ways represented the thrust of the rule of law in the international arena over the past decades. But we now find ourselves at... um, important inflection points, both with respect to the rule of law and with respect to limiting climate change. Um, As Waldron suggests, a system of political rule is not a system of law unless social order is organized around the existence of identifiable norms issued for guidance and conduct. What law is and how we understand it is contingent and it's evolving and this impacts our ability to identify and really rely upon a shared set of shared norms that can guide conduct moving forward. So we are at once debating who we are and how we relate to one another, and we're doing so on the precipice of global change. While this discourse is not new, it now determines in part how we respond to an incontrovertibly global and inevitably determinative crisis. So the UN has declared that we have 12 years within which to act to limit greenhouse gas emissions so as to avert really the worst effects of climate change, effects that would already are but would definitely touch us all, um, and also I would argue pose really insidious threats to the stability and effectiveness of our existing systems of governance. Um, and to the rule of law, whether thickly or thinly conceived. We live in really tumultuous political times and forecasts about future policy are perilous um, and it's perhaps inevitable that we're destined to experience a really kind of perpetual sense of frustration, is how I often think about it, as we attempt to whittle away at the kind of massive problem of climate change. And really, that's the nature of a massive collective action challenge. Um, In the case of climate change, grand solutions have proven elusive, and a chase of grand solutions kind of futile and frustrating. It's not the case, however, that this renders all efforts useless or the rule of law obsolete. Quite the opposite. Over time, as climate law and efforts to address climate change, whether we call them climate law or not, have evolved at the international, state, and local levels, even as efforts to develop a true sense of collective international community and cooperation have faltered, we've seen a multitude of developments at varying levels of governance that demonstrate the possibility of real progress on climate change. Climate change law, in fact, as my co-author Dan Farber argues, has shown a remarkable degree of resilience in adapting to barriers. There may never be an idealized grand solution to climate change, but there are many avenues for advocating and pressing for legal and political developments that will allow incremental but really real and pervasive um, legal and political developments in this context. But in order to understand what is possible and to maximize the rule of law as a tool in addressing climate change, We need to better understand where we are as an international community and our shared understandings with respect to the rule of law and its application in the climate context. And we need to better understand the ways in which climate change and the rule of law are intimately interlinked at every level of governance so that we can appreciate and respond to the threats that climate change poses to the stability of the rule of law and the opportunities that the rule of law offers in responding to climate change. Thanks.